morning, everybody. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to another edition of Running Into the Fog. Great to have our longtime friend Terry Thiel with us today, isn't it, Eric? Hey, Terry. Nice to have you. Hey, Derek. Pleasure to be anywhere at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think about running into the fog, Terry, um, you've had a long career in business and uh, lots of different things uh, have occurred. Uh, we look forward to confronting many of those uh, here in today's session. Uh, but as we get started, you know, the, the whole concept of this podcast is to really uh, reflect with our guests on uh, the concept of uncertainty. So not uncertainty, but uh, at what point do we have too little certainty to make actually some actions occur in our lives? And my understanding is you're writing a book that yeah. uh, begins to confront this type of notion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's the culmination of, of 40 years of trying to get senior government officials and uh, vice corporate vice presidents and uh, graduate students uh, to think about the future. And over that time, it took 40 years for me to figure it out, uh, but uh, uh, after 40 years, uh, I, I began to realize that uh, when we look at the world around us, the rate and degree of change are both accelerating at an exponential uh, rate. And we're not prepared for it. And so the, the purpose of uh, my manuscript is, is trying to explore what those destabilizing changes are uh, and whether Homo sapiens can cope, uh, whether we've got a future. And um, the way I went at it was to, to break uh, the history of the species into four ages. And the first age was about 200,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago where we were hunter-gatherers, and then 10,000 years ago to 1785, uh, where we were basically farmers. And 1785, I picked that date because that's about the time when steam, agent, uh, steam engines that were uh, viable, commercially viable, became readily available. Uh, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So the Third Age was when we made things up until, and uh, I, I've used COVID as a, as a convenient break for the Fourth Age we're, we're about to stumble into. And when you look at the, uh, the degree of change, uh, both societal and technological, that is coming down on us, um, it's, it's truly unprecedented. And just to give you a couple factoids, um, when you think about technological change, think about nanotechnology, synthetic biology, 3D printing, new materials, instantaneous, always on global communication, artificial intelligence, and cheap, ubiquitous off-grid energy. Um, and those are just a few of the disruptors. When you think about societal change, think about for the first time ever, more than half of all people now live in cities for the first time ever. For the first time ever, half of all countries no longer have replacement birth rates. Uh, Eastern Europe's gonna lose more than 40% of its population over the next several decades. And of all the population growth that is being estimated by the UN through the end of the century, 95% of that population growth is in Africa. 28 African countries are going to increase their population by over 250%. And whether increases or decreases, uh, these are all destabilizing uh, uh, disruptive factors. Now, I, I coupled that with 
my observation that has been reinforced by uh, a gentleman, Hans Rosling, who passed away several years ago, wrote a book called Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Rosling over the years has done a masterful job of taking data and, and visualizing it in a way that, that people can understand. And his experience with people led him in 2017 to survey 12,000 people in 14 different countries with a series of questions. And I think in 2015, if memory serves, he asked three of these questions to our perfumed elite at Davos. But what came out of that was some very disturbing uh, facts. Uh, the average score for the 12,000 was 12.5% correct, which put another way is 87.5% got the answers wrong. Out of 12,000 people, no one got all 13 of his questions right. Only one person got 11 out of 12 right, and that's out of 12,000 people. And I'm, I'm just going to, uh, I, I have in front of me here uh, a conclusory quote from Rosling that sort, sort of captures it, uh, and I'm, bear with me. This is Rosling's words. I've tested audiences from all around the world and from all walks of life, medical students, teachers, university lecturers, eminent scientists, investment bankers, executives, and multinational companies, journalists, activists, senior politicians. Most of them also got most of the answers wrong. Some of them were even worse than the general public. A few of the most appalling results came from Nobel laureates and medical researchers. By the law of averages, even a troop of chimps would score 33% on each three answer question, or four out of 12 on the whole test. What's more, the chimps errors would be equally shared between the two wrong answers, whereas the human errors all tend to be in one direction. Almost everyone thinks the world is more frightening, more violent, and more hopeless than it really is. Those are Rosling's words. But it lays the groundwork when you, when you think about if we're, if we're at, at an accelerating rate of change because of those societal and technological, and the people that are in charge don't know the data, they don't have it right, that that doesn't really bode well, <laughs> I, I, you know, for for the for the future of humanity. So in the manuscript, what I did is I, I as I attempted to understand the if you will the toolbox that Homo sapiens have put together over time, and you go back to that first period of two hundred thousand years when we were hunter gatherers. Uh, I would argue that we have hardwired into us a set of instincts um, that are irreducible and 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 are, are and are constant. And I've distilled them down into just basically a, a couple of headings. Uh, one, we're we're afraid of everything, and so we tend to when we perceive fear, we overreact to it. We learned, and, and it's almost pathological, uh, we learned that we, we have a better chance of surviving and passing on our genes if we belong to groups. So we are desperate to belong to a group. The third element is status within the group. We are desperate to do anything to improve our status within a group because it improves our chances to to survive, and it also improves our chances to get a mate and pass on our genes, which has led us as a species over the years to war and, and uh, annihilating other groups that aren't us. Um, we'll do most anything to, to stay in that group. And finally, curiosity. We're curious, but it's not curious and sort of any sort of wonderful philanthropic sense. It's, it's curiosity about what we don't know because we're scared to death that we, we don't know is eventually going to kill us. So our curiosity is driven 
to understand the unknown in order to defang it uh, before it gets us by the throat. Uh, and there's a, there's a wonderful, um, I think it was on the Discovery Channel, there was a series called How the Universe Works. And uh, very scientific, uh, uh, talking about the galaxies and the stars and neutron stars and black holes and all of this. But if you, if you, if you look at the headings for these different episodes, it's killer stars on their way, <laughs> you know? death by black hole. You know? <laughs> Uh, so clearly, uh, our, our pursuit of knowledge is 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 driven uh, by some by some attempt to uh, to protect us from. Us. What I find troubling about the fourth age that we're going into, because the rate of change is accelerating and the degree of change is increasing, is the tools that we built: forming groups, developing societies, creating cultures that set rules of engagement to live by to help protect us and, and allow us uh, to pass on our genes. They worked in the preceding three ages. Um, any child up until the present could look at their, grand, their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and assume that their future, their life, would look very similar to that of their parents and their grandparents. There might be some changes, fashion or what have you, but by and large, life would be the same. And they had a template to work off of. Well, that time depth, if you will, has collapsed to the point where there isn't anything as a boomer then I can pass on from, from my childhood, um, my experiences as, within a family that are going to help my grandchildren wrestle with their future. Uh, the time depth has collapsed to absolutely nothing. And so all those cultural norms and societal norms, you see at the moment that they're all being challenged. Everything is, is up in the air and, and our socio-political systems are being challenged. And when that's all gone, when that all gets scraped away, when the palimpsest is, is reduced and you're back in the vellum to the very first stuff that was written, it's those instincts. And uh, when you look at the, the contemporary research on, on psychology, uh, uh, heretofore the, the assumption was that the modern rational front lobe mind was there to keep the primitive backlobe mind under control. Well, current research is suggesting that that's really not what happens. The purpose of the rational modern mind that we have developed has been to come up with really good excuses to share with our group as to why we are going to do what that primitive backlobe mind told us instinctively should be done. Uh, so we're really not Vulcans, we're really Klingons. Uh, we, we, we react violently, instinctively. Uh, we are desperate to stay in groups and we'll do anything to build our status. And it plays out over and over and over again. And to bring it down to more, you know, a, a tactical level at the moment, you think about our socio-political system that's evolved since the Second World War, uh, where basically we've had a global economic system, thanks to the United States Navy making the sea lanes safe for trade. And that's been premised upon a, what I'll call a political uh, uh, compact between uh, our ruling elites at the top of our pyramids and everybody else down at the bottom. And that compact basically had four working parts. Uh, as a voter in a uh, Western democracy, I'm going to give you my vote and I am giving you my vote in exchange for you doing four things for me. First of all, I want my family to be safe. Secondly, I want to have a job so I can provide for them. 
Third, I want my children to have a future. And fourth, I want you to leave me alone otherwise, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. So that's my compact. And I don't care about Angola or, or any, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't understand it. I just want you to keep me safe, give me a job so I can provide for my family, give my children a future and leave me alone otherwise. Okay, if you do that, I'll be okay. Well, I think what we've seen over the past 20 years is that compact has failed uh, in a global economic world where in effect, everything gets manufactured in China. Uh, the, the bottom of the hierarchy in the developed world isn't really happy anymore. They've lost their jobs and they are increasingly fearful. Uh, and again, go back to human instincts. When you get fearful, we tend to overreact. And I think you're seeing that playing out in today's politics, that, that sort of violent, fearful overreaction by uh, the ruled class because of the failure of the ruling elites to deliver. And so the, as, I, as I walk through the manuscript towards the end, the, the, the challenge I'm sort of raising for Gen Zers and millennials is we boomers have failed. Uh, we, we've obviously uh, uh, not been able to uh, address um, the limitations of, of our instincts in, in, in a uh, uh, thoughtful manner uh, to cope with this rate of change and this degree of change. And so sure hope you can do a better job because uh, I, don't, I don't know how that's going to play out. So that in a nutshell is what it's about. Well, fascinating, Terry. Thank you. And, you know, I am, as a social scientist and historian, really, I sort of fake the whole businessman act uh, pretty well, I think. But, uh, it, you know, really what fascinates me is how systems break down and how systems uh, fail. And so I think you, you covered a lot of territory there, not just the last 200,000 years of human history, uh, but really, in particular, the shift from authoritarian uh administration to more egalitarian administration, which is obviously where you kind of put that 1785, you know, third age uh, split happening. And the notion that, um, I guess I'll bring it back to the, the, the Latin word fiat, which means force. Uh, and it's uh, a different kind of force. I would say that today force is exerted by authoritarians through the money supply, uh, thus the name fiat currency and the denomination by which prosperity is measured relative to you know one household to another within a given territorial you know political body and uh, and geography. And as we sort of think about you know, the means of production, uh, which has sort of been outsourced to China, as you uh, made note of there a minute ago, um, I, I shared with a colleague that, uh, you know, we're about to have a booming manufacturing renaissance in the United States of America, because uh, we're going to default on this, you know, 30-ish trillion dollar national debt that ultimately will force us by fiat to develop some new means of exchange of value and whether that's Bitcoin or a Fed coin or some other stable cryptocurrency, or we're going back to gold and silver and not likely, uh, or we end up as a Weimar style, uh, you know, cigarettes and eggs economy, uh, probably not cigarettes, probably something more exotic than that as a mood altering substance these days. Uh, but, you know, I got 20 chickens in my backyard and they make about 16 eggs a day, very predictably. And I can turn that into barter. Uh, I guess, Talk to me a little bit about, talk to us a little bit about. Well, let me, let me go back to urbanization and demographics. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and when you look at what uh, everyone is concerned about, uh, again, the ruling elite, and this is where they got uh, the answers wrong. Uh, everybody's afraid that the global population is going to continue to grow forever and ever, and we're all going to die. You know, Soylent Green, okay. Uh, there's there's wonderful movies uh, about uh, overpopulation. The simple fact of the matter is, even the UN data uh, 
admits that after the end of the century, global population is going to top out and then is going to decline. But if you look at other demographic experts who disagree uh, with the UN data, uh, there's a great book uh, called Empty Planet, um, uh, which, which goes through the data. Uh, a lot of demographics experts are, are, are forecasting that global population is going to top out sooner within our lifetimes at a lower rate, 8.5 billion, 9 billion, rather than 13 or 14 billion. And, and of course, we're just talking global there. Uh, as I had mentioned earlier, all the population growth really that's happening is, is in Africa. When you look at the demographics of Eastern Europe, it's catastrophic. And one demographics expert that I've worked with, uh, Dick Hokanson, calls it the Anglo-Saxon century because the only countries he thinks that will be close to be maintaining their population are the Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, partly because of birth weight, partly because that's where people want to move. If you want to see, though, what the disaster in a developed world economy might look like uh, from depopulation, look at Japan followed closely by Korea, where both, again, losing substantial portion of their populations. Now, going back to Rosling, what he's pointed out is that heretofore, economics drove demographics. Going forward, demographics are going to drive economics. And, and the implications of a depopulating world beyond political destabilization is we are looking at a deflationary world, which is why we're seeing negative interest rates. So for any particular company at a microeconomic level going into the future, longer term, you have to plan for a world where you have to get a bigger piece of a smaller pie. For the first time, supply will exceed demand. And that takes most of your economics and flips it on its head. Same now, with labor, though. I'm sorry to interrupt, but same with labor, though. Yes, yes, as absolutely. You continue yes. a long, long trend of automation, yeah. and you see uh, really this sort of UBI argument based on you know, what are people going to do? How are they going to earn a wage? You know, how many, yes, it, there's, there's this wonderful book written by Neil Stevenson in 1999 called The Diamond Age. It's, uh -huh. it's a sci-fi book. And he basically describes a future where, going back to all of that disruptive technology, take the, the third age Henry Ford mass production model, blow it up, look at a world of the future um, Christensen's quote was, we're going from a world of um, uh, few, few companies, uh, no, many companies, few markets, to few companies, many, or, I'm getting it wrong. I, I'm, I'm blowing the quote. This is one we'll have to probably redo. <laughs> uh, the, the quote basically is saying we're, we're going, we're flipping the model to a point where you are going to have many, many suppliers in many, many markets mm. driven by local customized production. Yeah. Thanks to nanotech and 3D printing and new materials and, and all the rest, the, the 20th century mass production model won't work in that future. Mm. So getting back to your question about economics, well, if I'm looking at a deflationary world now, given by, driven by the demographics, and then I'm looking at a totally disrupted economic model, well, I, I have no idea what it's gonna look like. Uh, now in my manuscript, I've actually run scenarios as to what the future might be in terms of the global economic environment. And then within those four scenarios, looking at okay, within a given country, how might that play out in terms of whether I'm 
to your point, I've got you know millions of unemployed who are nothing to do, uh, or or whether I've right-sized my economy. Uh, the you know the the Stevenson book that I mentioned, that future. 90% of the people were unemployed. They were warehoused, they were fed, they were clothed, but they had nothing to do. How much bad poetry can you write? I right. Mean, That's what I was going to say. You know, you, you just got done saying the four things. You want your family safety, your job, your future, and to be left alone. And it, it feels like without a job, the future is bleak. Yeah. And uh, you're at least down two out of the four, if not more. <laughs> Now, depending upon the scenario, uh, you know, it could be a micro world where everybody's got their little niche. I, I you know, I, the, the point I'm trying to make in the manuscript is to get a good argument started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I don't know. I'm, I've just done scenarios, you know, so I've, I've got my opinion, but my opinion isn't any better than anybody else's as to which of those scenarios plays out. Uh, but it's not the, the clear takeaway is if you are planning, if you are in the ruling elite and you have the wrong data now as to what the world looks like, and you are assuming that the future is going to be a global mass production world like it's been for the past 150 years, your plan and oh, that and our population is going to continue to grow, all of your planning parameters happen to be wrong. Mm hmm. So let's say, let's just say the U.S. Uh, in 2030 looks a lot like Japan in 2010. Uh, I, I happen to know that the fastest growing export uh, from Japan in 2010 was old people uh, because they didn't have anybody to take care of them. They didn't have any young people who could be senior care uh people to those who were who were growing elderly. So they started shipping their old people to the Philippines uh, and Malaysia and places like that, regionally nearby, uh, Asian and culture, but uh, they didn't have anybody to care for them at home. And I see that sort of thing happening here as well. I, I think that uh, the, the whole notion of the K-shaped recovery uh, is a powerful metaphor for what I think is going to happen to uh, economic growth in the United States, which is asset deflation. In other words, you know, all of these, uh, you know, things that you need to transform and are stores of value and traditional, you know, concentrations of, of wealth, so to speak, um, right down to the point of confiscation, by the way, by uh, political elites who need to turn that into uh streams of income for the, the vast swaths of unemployed because they're having to pay more for uh, more transactional goods and services. Food, for example, uh, being something we all like to have enough of, uh, I think, and the, the notion healthcare. that healthcare, exactly right. And, and, you know, even to a certain extent, leisure, I was looking at uh, the leisure sector in the last 20 years has been the by far fastest growing segment of the US economy and was also the segment of the economy deemed non-essential 12 months ago when we went into lockdown. Uh, and of course, that's where a lot of the unemployment happened. A lot of the, uh, the lost revenue wages and you know transactional value went out of that model. And I guess I don't, see it coming back the way a lot of people hope it will. There will be some bounce back, of course, because people want to go on vacation again. And they, they, you know, I've been sitting in this bedroom and for anybody who's been watching for 12 months now doing these meetings. And boy, I haven't, I haven't hugged my kid brother since February of last year, I don't think. And, uh, and I really miss him. I miss you too, Terry. I'd hug, I'd give you a hug too, if I could. Uh, I'd rather but, just share a beer if you don't mind. Or, or have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could do but, that too, in, in addition to the hug. That's right. But uh, the travel economy is based on business travel underwriting 70% of the total size of that market. So we just spent 12 months proving that businesses don't need to send their people on business trips anymore. What happens to the recalibration of that income and, and you know, cost structure when it's no longer 70% of that economy is based on business travel and it's now 
7% of that economy. And, and all of a sudden your trip to Disney World is no longer a $5,000 trip. It's a $50,000 trip. Well, and, you know, and, so and to play, play, that, play out the reallocation, uh, the demographic reallocation of populations when, I, you know, anecdotally, my two sons, the one son is a consultant. The other son is an architect. Uh, the consultant previously would travel all the time. He's not. He's Zooming it all. Uh, my architect son used to go into the office every day, and he hasn't been in the office all year. And in the future, anticipates he may go into the office once a day, uh, one day every other week at the most. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the evolution of businesses that are not, I'm not in the lab or I'm not in a factory, um, I'm, I'm doing service related or, or professionally related. Uh, I, I've had several doctor visits that have been virtual, uh, that have been probably more successful than uh, uh, in-site in doctor visits. I don't have to live in the city anymore. I don't have to put up with that. I can go to a different suburban or ex-urban environment where my quality of life is better. So I'm now taking that de demographic mix. And here I'm primarily talking about the developed world. Yep. And I'm, I'm redefining that. So to your point, well, yeah, maybe not everybody's going to the restaurant, but I could envision a whole lot more restaurants over a spread, it's not the, not the density in New York, but here, anecdotally, I'm living in Wilmington, North Carolina. We, uh, our county is, is, the city of Leland that I'm in is the fastest growing city, I think, in the country. Mm. The county was the fifth fastest growing county in the country. And it's all... Yankees coming down the I-95 corridor, primarily boomers, uh, that are filling up all this new housing construction around me. And in the Wilmington area, the number of really good restaurants is not, you wouldn't anticipate that given the indigenous population. So you've got this influx of people with money that are supporting, to your point, part of that service, you know, and it, maybe it doesn't go away, maybe it gets redistributed or it gets changed. But if the demographics are changing and the urbanization model is changing, everything else changes with it. Uh, which right. goes back to maybe I'm not looking at mass production products anymore where I can basically get a different color, but that's about all I, I just go to my local guy with a 3D printer and I need a widget to do X or Y. And he, he or she makes exactly what I want off of a drawing that we have agreed upon. And I get it the next day in the exact material I want. I, it, it's fundamentally going to be a, a very different world. Uh, hmm. And so in some respects, I'm not all that pessimistic because the potential uh, of what that future economic model might be is amazing. Uh, the question is whether everybody has something to do, right? Or, or you know, fit. Now, the good news there is the population is declining, <laughs> so there are fewer people that you have to worry about. <laughs> but again, we've never been in a world where populations are declining. And, and now you're going to have more older people with fewer younger people to support them. So all of your pyramids are now, I mean, and I go back to China and India. Mm. If you want to talk about two countries, China's already aging. They're already getting smaller. India is still growing, will still grow for 30, 40 years. But by the end of the century, they will be shrinking. What exacerbates both China and India as hotspots for fearful overreaction is both countries, for different reasons, have a, a dislocation between males and females. Mm. Way too many males, not enough females in both countries. In yep. tens of millions of males 
for which there are no females. That's a lot of testosterone to cope with. Float, floating around unabsorbed by unabsorbed testosterone ability to be absorbed. Yeah. You want to you yep. talk about fear, chaos, anger, overreaction, homo sapiens, you know, there we are. Uh, and uh, already they're sniping at each other over the Himalayas, you know, so. Right. <laughs> well, and that seems to me, you know, China's a really fascinating situation. I, I discovered the demographic construct of the population pyramid and the notion that in these different bands of age groups, um, obviously human lifespans are, are elongating slowly, yeah. probably yeah. not as fast as population or depopulation is trending. Um, so you have a place like China rapidly. I mean, if they did everything right for the next 30 years, I saw that this was a, an analysis that I saw. I think it was a University of Wisconsin-Madison dem demographer who, who theorized that if they did everything perfectly for the next 30 years, they might get to replacement birth rates by 2050, their 100th the 100th anniversary of the revolution, in other words, which, by the way, uh, if you haven't read uh, a book called uh, Unrestricted Warfare uh, by two uh, Chinese PLA generals in 1999, much of what we see in our world today, including the opioid crisis and, you know, mass lockdown hysteria from pandemic circumstances and the debt bubble and all the, you know, polarization of the of the uh, of the populace political uh, you know uh, tribalism and identitarianism all of that stuff is in that book um, now I'm not going to say it's a it's a blueprint per se uh, but it's at least a forecast uh, of what their uh, primary yeah. economic correlation is not always causation but okay. But it's a darn big coincidence uh, that, <laughs> that their number one economic hegemon just happened to go through what most of what was predicted in that book. Now, if you think about what China's trying to do, China refers to the American century, in other words, the 20th century, as the century of humiliation. Uh, and largely that, I think, is reflected in the, you know, what you saw happen with the Cultural Revolution in the, in the 1960s and 70s, and really until Mao died. Um, a lot of what's happening now politically is very, very eerily similar. There's a lot of sort of otherization of, of political groups. And the, the identitarianism is really alarming to me as a citizen. And as, you know, I used to call myself a libertarian, and I think I'm probably more of a constitutional anarchist uh these days i'll i will i will honor the get limits. you in trouble careful you know i will honor the limits of the government's uh power to enforce its laws up to and including the entirety of the bill of rights and that's about it uh so you know obviously that you want to be left take... alone exactly i want that number four thing that whole yeah. liberty thing is really really important to me because i can take care of the rest i can handle the other three I can handle, I can actually handle my own security and I won't go into how. I can handle my own, you know, prosperity and income production. I can handle, you know, uh, my my job and future part of that. It's that liberty part, you know, that, that really concerns me. And the fact that I haven't lived in a city for a long, long time may be contributing to that. But talk a little bit about that, Terry. What's going on in the country when you've got all these boomers, uh, you know, they they get there in Leland, they see that Cracker Barrel and say, "Man, I'm going to open a oh a brunch spot that has you know really good you know bagels and cream cheese or or whatever their you know missing part of their diet was from up north." Well, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna segue a bit on that in in terms of of sort of the behavior. Uh, of, of our, our population groups at the moment. Um, and of course, you know, I had, I had mentioned earlier that uh, Homo sapiens over the ages had created societies, you know, the first city states and then evolved cultures. And, and you, can, you can see there are, there are a set of cultural norms uh, that you can identify a, a, uh, a society by and measure them in terms of their uh, um, willingness to accept independence, uh, their deference to, to authority, 
uh, and and I'm I'm blanking. I'll, I'd have to pull the uh, uh, source. I don't have it right in front of me. But uh, there there was a researcher who had identified a series of these attributes and then measured countries. And so you can look at China versus Russia versus the United States and see how dissimilar they are based upon these sort of cultural parameters about you know, expectation of independence versus deference to authority and, 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 and group uh, uh, consensus. And, and I, as a general matter, I think there's a, a recognition that Eastern societies, Eastern cultures versus Western cultures, there's clearly a difference in collectivist uh, versus individualist uh, uh, predilections there. Yep. And, and these, this, this researcher is, is ex, elaborated upon those attributes. And what was interesting is I pulled the attributes for the Anglo-Saxon countries Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, Canada, and US, and then plotted them all on a spider diagram. So you could see there's a, you know, in a remarkable similarity among the Anglo-Saxon countries with a couple, you know, differences. Americans tend to be more independent. Brits tend to be more consensus-based, you know, some things that you know, normally would play out. So you've, you've got the set of cultural parameters that sort of dictate how different groups of homo sapiens are gonna behave. Layer that on top of that, individual personality types. Uh, and there are so many different psychological profile tools out there. I, I just use Myers-Briggs just because it's been tested universally across countries uh, and the same personality types, 16 Myers-Briggs personality types show up in, in every culture, okay? Yep. I layered on top of that my own uh, personality indicator tool that I uh, created over the years. And I've got my own four, four characteristics that I use uh, to, to measure individual people. And those are whether or not you're rich or poor, which is your, your social background, not that you made money, but you either came from money or you came from a, a poor environment. That's the first one. The second one is whether or not you are ambitious or lazy, which is an individual attribute. The third of which is whether you are ignorant or educated and that tends to be also societal now that's not to say that a poor ambitious person cannot make themselves educated but it tends to be a societal attribute because of the financial requirements to receive an education mm -hmm. and then the final is whether you are intelligent or stupid <laughs> okay now, we have a problem historically in homo sapien groups. When the first leaders evolved and became leaders, they tended to become leaders because they were intelligent, tended to be educated about the society that they were in, and they were ambitious, and they, they emerged to the top as leaders. But once you have leaders, classic homo sapien behavior is I want to pass on my genes. So I want my children also to be leaders. Mm. And, and of course there've been more mad Kings than we you know, can count just because I'm a leader doesn't mean my child has the same attributes. So what we find is self perpetuating elites that don't necessarily exhibit the attributes of leadership that you would mm -hmm. like to see. And we've got an awful lot of educated, stupid, ambitious uh, 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 people out there, okay, who think because they went to school, they're intelligent. 
was going to say they gather in Dallas every year, don't they? Uh, yeah, well, just just because you went to school and got a degree doesn't mean that you are intelligent. It just means that you have a lot of facts that you can spew around. We've got a lot of stupid, ambitious people out there in charge, and they're the. And then what's worse is if you get a stupid, lazy one who winds up in charge. Uh, you know. So you, you sort of look at those psychological attributes that homo sapien groups have perpetuated, and now we're stuck with them. So I may have a Myers-Briggs ENTJ type, who is your natural leader, but he also intends, you know, happens to be uh, educated, stupid, and, you know, and... Katie bar the door. Uh, um, you know, we've got fundamental issues as a species. And we don't know how to fix them. <laughs> well, and, you know, so much of, and then Derek, I'm going to toss you the final wrap-up question here for Terry, if, uh, if you want to handle it. But um, the, the whole notion of uh, elites and elites uh, leading our societies forward, I think, is one that's very frail. Uh, now, historically, I think the notion that uh, autonomy is sacrificed voluntarily uh, is is really pretty long in the tooth. And uh, one of the indicators I'm watching here now on March 11th, 2021, by the way, I'll remind people of the date is whether or not the Fed monetizes our national debt. Uh, and frankly, looking at uh, the, the sort of uh, you know, future of how the United States of America will will be an entity in on the global stage. You know, I like everybody else tends to have a very doomsday, uh, you know, bias, I guess, and that's because you know economics is the dismal science. Because at the end of the analysis, we're all dead. Uh, so. Um, Tell me, uh, first of all, what your working title of the book is so that we can watch for it. Second, you better tell us how people can track and monitor and surveil you for your insights on LinkedIn, heaven forbid, Twitter. Uh, maybe you're even uh, an Instagram, TikToking, Telegram user or something, you know, really out there like that. And then, uh, you know, Derek, final question's yours. Uh, well, the working title is Our Fourth Age, uh, A Story for My Grandchildren, because I'm writing it for my grandchildren. Uh, whether they read it, I don't know, but I'm writing it for them. I'll read it. I'll and, read it, and you can adopt me. And then, and how, uh, many grand, how many grandchildren do you have, Terry? Nine. Nine. Wow. wow. Pretty good. Nine, yes. And uh, uh, I'm a boomer, so my, my social media behavior is absolutely embarrassing. I, I'm on LinkedIn, and you can contact me if you've got questions at tvfeel at msn.com. And that's about as far as I've, I've gotten a couple of YouTube videos, uh, but uh, I, I haven't been TikToking. I guess I need to start doing that yeah. uh, uh, to expand my social footprint. Uh, <laughs> we will... Uh... We'll make sure we tag you on TikTok when we release this podcast, Terry. So, so uh, boy, we covered a lot of ground. I think it's pretty clear to the audience that I am uh, the dumber of the, the the far and away dumber of the three on this today's podcast. Um, I can't even swim in your guys' depths. But the the, the final thing I want to leave our audience with, Terry, you've known us, you've interacted with us. We talked to 20 or so minutes ago about getting a hug and a beer. We've had that opportunity. Um, we've even done it uh, and had in the background things like PowerPoint karaoke at our Reconverge G2 meetings. They'll come back again someday. I'm not worried about that <laughs> one bit, but um, you know, can you share with us a favorite memory of uh, interactions with the Joe Bros? Might it be PowerPoint karaoke or something else? Oh, well, actually I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go back even further and and this is back to when um, Nat Brooks and I co-chaired the conference. Indianapolis. That, uh, I thought that was. I was going to say Austin. Maybe it was Austin. Austin. I think it was Austin. Austin late 2013. Was, yeah. Yeah, it was Austin. Um, and. And, and and I guess the reason I'm 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 jumping on that was the. Uh, the freedom 
that you provided uh, Nat and me to do whatever it is we wanted uh, and that we could get away with uh, in, in terms of getting what we thought was important uh, out in front of the, the, the attendees uh, and, and sort of playing it the way we wanted to play it. And I thought that sort of, um, that was very, it was very reassuring uh, and, and uh, uh, enjoyable to, to have that trust uh, in us uh, to not really screw it up. Uh, uh, and I guess the other thought was the, uh, uh, a couple of years ago when you were doing a shark tank and, and I got to play the uh, uh, 100-year-old uh, uh, vice president uh, for the company with, with, with the uh, uh, offending sharks. <laughs> That's so fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, Terry, so, uh, we, we have our own little uh, personality profiling index around here, and it's... Uh, how much beer would I want to drink with that guy? And if the answer is <laughs> a lot, which you, you're you away on that a lot uh, side of that index, um, we'd love to have you back on the podcast soon. Well, let me, let me just throw out one yeah. final quick final thought. When we do strategic planning exercises for me, the most important part of the strategic planning exercise is having a, uh, taking the team and having a beer at the end of the, middle day because right. that's where the real thinking takes place yeah that right is on. well said what a way to finish <laughs> nice finish terry yeah. derek always a pleasure uh terry we'll have to have you back and keep us posted on the book and uh we'll get you back on here yeah no, i just have to find an agent <laughs> so terry uh, is looking for an, a a publishing agent is that what they're called <laughs> Uh, literary agent is that what you call it yeah i'm trying to find somebody because i you know if this is like being a third year law student and you're applying for all of those positions where experience is required and you don't have any yep i've never written a book before i don't know what i'm doing when i've led such a sheltered life i don't even what they know what they're called so uh yeah. but terry's looking for one let the bidding <laughs> war start now uh it starts at a million dollars how about that there we go there we go <laughs> Thanks, guys. A lot of good it'll do yeah. you when the when the dollar's busted uh, here in a, here in a few years. Um, but anyway, thank you again. This was fun, guys. So much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>